As I said, we're continuing on with our series in Galatians at the minute. And as I was thinking about this morning, this morning's passage reminds me of a conversation I have had, oh, I would say probably at least 20 to 30 times in the past year. Um, it's usually not from people here, it's usually from, from people who I meet and I, I begin chatting. And one of the first questions you usually ask somebody after the name is, what do you do? And I respond, well, I, I'm trying to be a Presbyterian minister. And usually that will either end the conversation completely or it, it will continue on a wee bit. And usually after a wee while I've chat, chatting to me, they begin to ask, oh, where are you from? And I say, oh, I grew up on a farm in North Antrim. And then I get a very set few questions. I then get asked, um, oh, right, um, do you have an older brother? I say, no, I don't have an older brother. Do you have any younger brothers? I don't have any younger brothers. Do you have any other siblings at all? And it's like, oh, well, I have a sister. And, and she, got, she got married uh, a few years ago and they have a wee boy. And they're like, oh, okay, okay. Is her husband a farmer? Um, and then I say no. And then the automatic response and the automatic question and the problem to overcome is then asked, well, then what's going to happen to the farm? Because even though probably the thought about being an heir and being an oldest son and all of these things might seem very far removed from the modern world. Those of you who come from an agricultural background or have friends and family in agricultural circles, you will know that there's still a remnant of this idea of being a son and being an heir in our society. It all comes back to the most important son often in a family is the oldest son. I always think of the story of a farmer. I don't know if I've said this before. Um, there was a joke that my dad told me years ago um, about a, a farmer who uh, he had he had three daughters, and uh, they, they wanted to try again so they could have a son, and his oldest son could inherit the, the farm. And uh, he ended up, his wife got pregnant, and when she gave birth to two girls, and um, the farmer said, well, when they started coming out in twos, I thought we may as well stop. Um, it's a terrible joke, I'm afraid. But, you know, I, I laughed at it at the time. But the idea is, is that we're, we're, in the ancient world, there was a very similar idea to that, that the only person who could inherit was the oldest son. The only person who could inherit was the oldest son. And the, the person who got the biggest share and the biggest portion was the oldest son. And this morning, what this passage is trying to show you and communicate to you is that no matter what sort of Christian you are, if you are a new Christian or an old Christian, whether you think you're a good Christian or you think that you're a terrible Christian, the way that God looks at you is the way that he looks at his oldest son if we were to adopt that old, outdated language of male inheritance. Because when God looks at you, he sees his child. And he doesn't see his far off removed child. He doesn't see his child that is kicking and screaming and throwing a tantrum at the door. He doesn't see a child who hasn't rang him back um, in a few months. He sees his favorite child. And he sees his oldest son. And this is the wonderful truth that we believe as Christians, that the gospel doesn't just take away our sins. It gives us a new identity. And that new identity is as, is as children of God. The issue that was going on in Galatia, as, as I've kind of said a few times now, um, was that there was a group had arisen in Galatia who had begun to try and conflict the gospel. And they had tried to say that Yes, you become a Christian by believing in Jesus, but in, either, in, in order to become a really good Christian, to be you know, the next tier Christian, platinum membership, like Christian prime, 
you need to begin observing all these Old Testament laws and you need to begin doing this and you need to start doing that and you need to start doing as we say. And Paul's response to these people who wanted to say that, okay, for you to go further or for you to become really a good child of God, what you need to do is X, Y, or Z. Paul's response is to keep on banging one drum again and again and again, which is it's not about you, it's all about Jesus. So whenever these, these Judaizers were trying to tell the people in Galatia that Paul wasn't a proper apostle because he wasn't called by the apostles in Jerusalem, Paul's response is to bang his drum and say, I wasn't called by people, I was called by Jesus. And whenever they try to conflict his gospel and try and say that his gospel um, isn't a proper one because it didn't come from the apostles in Jerusalem because it came from Paul himself, Paul's response is, I didn't get the gospel from men because I got the gospel from Jesus. Or whenever he wants to talk about the Galatians becoming Christians and they want to say, well, I, do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? It's, it's not about what you do. It's about coming to Jesus. And whenever he, they want to say, well, how do I stay a Christian? How do I keep going on as being a Christian? How do I become a better Christian? Paul says, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's always about him. And he bangs this drum again and again and again because the Christian faith always comes back to Christ, to Jesus Christ. And the Christian faith is centered around him. There's that wonderful, wonderful question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that I quoted last time I spoke, that is, what is faith? Faith is a saving grace whereby we receive and we rest in Jesus Christ alone. That's what the Christian faith is. It's a receiving and it's a resting in Jesus. And it's doing that day after day after day. And this passage is unfurling the richness of that and, and, and how that happens and, and what that means and how our identity gets changed. But it all is centered around this idea that we become sons by receiving and resting in Jesus. And we're gonna see three things as we work through this passage. We're gonna see how we get changed as a result of being united to, we're, we're changed as we're united to Jesus, we're changed as we're united to each other, and we're changed as we're made into sons instead of slaves. So the first thing we see is that we are united to Jesus. That's that first thing we read in verse 26, if you look down. It says that, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you are baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves in his righteousness. So in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus might sound quite strange, sound a bit a little weird. It might sound a little mystical that we are trying to be at one with Jesus and we might sit with our legs crossed and hum was thinking that. Um, but in Christ Jesus is a really common phrase and quite often we talk about it in the church as being united to Jesus, union with Christ, united to Christ. And what that means quite simply is this. There is no blessing that Christianity can offer outside of the person of Jesus. It is all found in Jesus. You know, the title of, or not title, the name of our, our faith, Christianity, kind of gives it away. It's Christ Jesus Christianity, because it's all about him. All the blessings are found in him and there's nothing to be found outside of him. So how do we get into him? How do we, how are we in Jesus? Well, if you look down at the passage, it says, 
It says that, so in Christ Jesus, you were of children of God through, through saying the right thing and doing the right thing. No, it says through faith, through faith. And what is faith? Faith is that receiving and resting in Jesus. You don't need to go on any mystical spiritual retreat. You don't need to adopt any new secret practice. You don't need to go on a 10-week course. To be in Jesus and to get all the blessings of Christianity, you just need to receive Jesus. And you just need to rest in knowing that what he's done is enough. And that's what the Christian faith is made up of. And by that, we get salvation. We, got, we also get sonship whenever we're in Jesus. And that's because the sonship that we share in, it, it, isn't, it isn't just a gen- generic childness or a generic childness of God, but rather the sonship that's applied to us that enables us to be called children of God is the sonship of Jesus. That whenever we are united to Jesus, whenever we are in Jesus by that faith that is receiving and resting in Jesus, that is what enables us to become also a son of God, a child of God, and not just any child, because the sonship we share in isn't just any old sonship. It's the sonship of Jesus, Jesus eternally begotten of the Father, Jesus, the only Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God, whom when he was baptized, the Father said from heaven, this is my only Son, with whom I am well pleased. And that is the sonship that God looks at with you. So he doesn't see all of the the messiness and the failures that cling and clutter up our lives. He sees the sonship of his eternal son, perfect. And he sees you as that son. He sees you as that child. And our God is not a God who likes to show favoritism. You know, uh, whenever I was growing up, me and my sister always used to joke about who was the favorite. Um, And my sister would always joke and say that um, that she was the favorite and that they found me in a gutter somewhere. Um, You know the way kids are really lovely and nice to each other. And I I would always remember that uh, my mom would say, uh, to try and reassure me in the midst of that, well, James, you know, like you're definitely, you're definitely our child. We didn't find you in a gutter somewhere because you were the only child in the hospital that night. And if I tried to leave you behind, they would have found where we lived. You know, sometimes we can have that kind of an attitude going on in our families where, you know, there's a bit of like, ho, 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 I'm the favorite, or ho, 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 this one's really the apple of their eye. That's not the God we worship. How does a perfect father look at all of his children? A perfect father looks at all of his children equally, equally with the same love and delight. And that's what we even read if if you flick in your Bible over the page to chapter two, verse six, where it says that as for those who were held in high esteem, people who are held high esteem in the world around us, what does Paul think of them? Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. You are a child. And we're all his favorite child because there is no distinction and there is no favorites. There's just sons. And then we also see that as we are brought in and we're given that wonderful, wonderful identity, we begin to see that we're getting a look into what is probably one of the most mysterious and yet wonderful things of the Bible. Because we're also then given 
salvation, we're given sonship, and we're also given a bit of the family resemblance. Because whenever we are engrafted into Jesus and brought into him, to be in him means to be slowly and gradually transformed by him. It means that we begin to look a bit more like him. That's when it, you know that language we would say where that person's really godly or that person's really Christ-like or I, I, I wanna be like Christ or I wanna do all that. All that language is about just trying to bring about the family resemblance in you. And the way we bring about the family resemblance in Christianity is not through a back-breaking workout of moral laws to hold up. But it comes from realizing our identity in Christ all the more and how that, that changes everything from the inside out. In the same way that you did not have to earn your family, some of you might be thinking, well, if I'd earn my family, I didn't put in a lot of work to begin with. But the same way you don't earn your family, your family love you anyway. That's one of the great things about family. God loves you as his child. You don't need to earn that love because of his family resemblance to you. And as we all then share in this sonship, as we all share in this wonderful title of being a child of God, it's not just that we are saved to become sons. We're saved to each other. We're not just saved to be sons, but we're saved to be siblings. And that's what Paul gets at then in the next verse, where he says that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what Paul's trying to get here is that as there is no favoritism, there's no distinction within God's children. There's no distinction in who's better and who's further. Because the issue in Galatia was that they had tried to argue that Jewish Christians were better than Greek or Gentile Christians. That was the issue. And Paul was wanting to come back and say, just as there is only one way into Jesus, there's only one way of staying in Jesus. It's not that there's a tiered system. It's not like there's a fast pass. It's not like there's a platinum membership. There's just us all coming in under the same title, Jew or Gentile, no matter where we're from. We're all the same and all in the same standing before God. God does not show favoritism. And then he says this next thing. He says that there is neither slave nor free. Now, we might find that an odd thing to add in, neither slave nor free. But if you imagine in the ancient world, this is the single biggest difference between people that you can have in a one room. You know, we all might be very, very different folks in here with different backgrounds and different incomes and different educations and different families, but we're all free people. You know, none of you work without getting paid. Or at least I hope not. If you do, that you should report that to somebody. But you are all free people. You all share the same rights and the same value in the eyes of the law as it's held up before us by the civil magistrate. You are all equal people in the eyes of the law. In the ancient world, that wasn't the case. In the ancient world, if I was standing in a room this size, the odds are there would be some people who were not people in and of themselves, but were possessions. That's how big a distinction it would be, that you were a sub-person because you were owned by somebody else. That was awful and that was terrible. And what Paul's driving at is that the gospel breaks down those sorts of distinctions because it says we're all one. 
I lived in Scotland for a while. Um, and whenever I was in Scotland, I was right up in the Highlands in Inverness. And I heard a story of one of the ministers uh, who was in one of the, some of the churches that were to the, the kind of the south of us, which were right up in the hills. Um, he was uh, looked after, I think it was about four small little churches up in the highlands of Scotland. There weren't very, very many people in them. And one Sunday he got a call saying that there was somebody very important coming. And I was like, great, can I t- know who it is? And they said, no, you're not allowed to know who it is for security reasons. That just kind of makes you want to know all the more, doesn't it? And he, he was preparing the cert beforehand in the minister's room. And then as he went out into the, into the, the kind of the meeting house of the church, he saw that there was the usual 12 people that were there every Sunday, but there was a new person there. There was a little old woman sitting and two rather burly rugby, play, rugby player looking men standing at the back door. The queen had showed up to this little service in the middle of nowhere in a hole in the hedge in Scotland. So he carried out his service. He did what he, he usually did. But as he was carrying out the service, a crowd began to amass outside the church and become quite difficult to hold the service because of all the, the kind of the people cheering and chatting and making noise. And I rem- he said something about that which has always stuck in my head, which was, you know, whenever he left the church that day, there was literally hundreds of people standing outside the church wanting to meet the queen. And not one of them had realized that if they had wanted to meet her, they could have walked into the church and sat down in the pew next to her. Because in that moment, as, the, as Queen Elizabeth worshipped God in that pew in a tiny little church of Scotland, she had no better standing before God than every other person who was sat in the church with her. Because the gospel transcends and transforms every societal barrier so that there is no them and us, there is no those people up there and those people down there. There's just us. And we all share in that one sonship together. And then we see this final little phrase in this uh, verse that says that, that there's neither male nor female neither male nor female. This might seem a bit of an odd thing, and this kind of ties back into the circumcision issue that was going on in Galatia because the men were forced to be circumcised and the women weren't. But also if you go into a synagogue now, what would happen is the men would sit in one area, the women sit in another. And this is kind of one of these things where we can begin to see how there was a distinction in wanting to create a segregation between men and women and wanting to elevate men above women. And we see that the gospel also transforms that. But I think also more radically, what this also means is that this reality of the gospel, it it, it doesn't change who you are. Becoming a child of God doesn't necessarily change who you are in a very particular way. It does change us in some ways, but there's one way it doesn't change you. It still lets you be you. Still lets you be you. Because whenever we become children of God, we don't become a homogenous In most churches, I would say Presbyterian blue blob, but in Mays, I think we can say a Presbyterian purple blob. Um, We we don't all become this homogenous group of carbon copy Christians. You become you, as you were always meant to be, as God created you to be, with all your passions and all of your loves and all your desires. He didn't want to save you so you would become an exact copy of that really godly person you know. He became a Christian so that you become the godliest version of you that there is. Not getting rid of the things that make you you, but infusing them with a godliness that infects every aspect of your being. 
so that there is not one single iota of your identity that is not transformed by the reality of your sonship of God, so that you can be a man or a woman and be a son of God, so that you can be a carpenter or you can be a clerk and be a son of God. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do, where you're from, we are all ourselves in our fullest glory because we are children of God, realizing our full identity in him. And also, whenever we begin to realize that we are all one in Christ Jesus and we are all united to each other and we all become sons, if we're all sons, there's a bit of a logical flowing from that, which is we're also all siblings. It's not just that you're a son, you become a brother and a sister at the same time. You are not just saved to then go about and be an individual and float through life. You are saved into a family. And what that family looks like is what we look like this morning. An eclectic bunch of people who probably wouldn't meet together in normal everyday life, but we meet together on a Sunday morning like this. Because why? We share in the one family name and we share in the one sonship. And we are saved not just to God, but we are saved to each other because we're saved into this family. And that's gonna be really, really hard for us to make that look like a family over the next two weeks. The next two weeks are gonna be hard for us to work out this practical application of not just our sonship in God, but our siblingship in God. If siblingship is a real word, I'm sorry if it's not. So can I encourage you over the next couple of weeks as you begin to think more and realize more of who you are in Jesus as a, as a child of God, realize that you're, you're not just a child, but you're a sibling. You know, ring each other, look out for one another. Be part of the family. Because part of the Christian life is not saying, well, as long as I have my fill, I'm happy. But the Christian life is living for the family. And the family is who we are here and we're still the family whenever we're scattered. And let the sonship and the siblingship of God transform you. And then finally, we see how this reality works its way out whenever we see that we are no longer slaves, but we are sons. And this is what we read in chapter four. It says, what I am saying is this, that as long as there's an heirs under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by, by his father. So also when they were underage, we were in slavery, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship, because you are his sons." God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. This might sound a wee bit complex and a wee bit weird. Paul is trying to build um, an idea out of an ancient illustration. And what he's trying to build out is kind of the picture of an old nobleman who maybe had a lot of money and a lot of land. And, you know, in the ancient world, they didn't have healthcare. They had, generally, if you got sick, you died. So you could die quite young. So if he died and he left an heir, a, a, a child who was maybe about seven or eight, 
there would be an issue because this child had went from, you know, playing with sticks and stones and being a normal little kid to suddenly having loads of money, loads of wealth and loads of authority. And if, like, you know, most children I've met are lovely, but the last thing I would want to give them is a lot of money and a lot of authority because I know we're, we know that it would go crazy, wouldn't it? A whole vast wealth could be spent in a sweet shop in an afternoon, couldn't it? A whole vast inheritance could be disappear in Smith's or in Toymaster or whatever your toy shop of your choice is. Because we don't have the wisdom yet, we need time to build that and, and, and figure that out. So in the ancient world, what would happen is to prevent that, they would prevent, put a guardian or a trustee over the child. So this child who, even though they own as far as the eye can see, and even though they have all the money you can imagine, this child lives being bossed about by this guardian. You know, the child is told what time to get up in the morning. The child is told how to be frugal with their money. The child is told what to do and when to do it and how to do it so that as they grow up, they pick up these skills and they become a wise adult. And Paul's illustration is then trying to show that, and that's a bit like the Old Testament law. Because the way the Old Testament law worked was that it was a way of teaching us and training us of what it meant to be a Christian. It, meant, it was teaching us and training us of something that we as Presbyterians call the third use of the law, which is the law was given to show us our sinfulness, to organize civil society. But most importantly, the law was given, us, given to us to show us what God delights in to show us what God loves. And so as we are brought in to the sonship of God, we look at the law of the, that guardian, that trustee that was placed in the Old Testament to show us what the heart of our God was like and to show us what he loved. And we see that what God loves is to redeem people like us and to bring them into ourselves. And that's then what we read in verse four, but he says, but... When the time had fully come, so right now, he sent his son into the world, born of a woman under the law to redeem those under the law. As sons, we enter into the full inheritance of Jesus. Not when we die, not at some distant point, but now. And the sonship and the reality of our, our, our identity as a child of God comes to full bear on us now. And there is not a blessing and there is not a promise and there is not a hope of Christianity that is being withheld from you for another day. But it is all your full inheritance to take hold of now as we rest and receive Jesus, who makes us into children of God. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for the good news of your wonderful hope that we are not just saved, but we are saved to be sons and we are saved to be siblings. And Lord, would you fill us with that hope all the more each day. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.